Welcome to the BLT and T podcast. I'm Sandy Castro, the president and co-founder of IC Stars. And the BLT podcast is um, business, leadership, and technology over tea in a podcast. <laughs> Uh, so we'll have several episodes over time with amazing leaders who are either uh, business gurus, leadership geeks, or technology aficionados. And all of them will have one important thing in common. Well, two, actually. They see stars, and they're about to have a wonderful pot of tea. Welcome back to the BLT and T, and I'm here today with uh, with Chris Comerford, the CIO from the Adler Planetarium. So it's like star stuff, right? I see stars. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so we're so we're so grateful to have you on the show today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you just had tea with Psycho Forty, the legendary. I was how was tea? Tea was excellent. This is easily one of the best things that I do in any given year. Um, I was just talking to them about how, uh, you know, especially at the end of the day, like whether whether your day was all about um, big picture strategy stuff or troubleshooting a technical problem, which actually my day was about today, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, the minutia of management, you then get to come here and just get energized by oh. these by by these folks who have really put themselves into a new situation with the intent to first learn something that maybe they've never tried before, mm -hmm. they've never been comfortable with before, and then uh, and then figure out how to apply it to you know to improve their world, their community um, is you know just. It, it's it's energizing to those of us who come to participate. Awesome, thank you. And energizing for them to meet someone like you, who's actually doing the work, fast forward, being an IT leader, being in service to the community that we come from. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, are you a native of Chicago? Did I I'm not. Uh, I've now lived here longer than anywhere else. Um, I moved here. Um, after going to high school in South Florida, uh, I moved here to go to college at the University of Chicago down in sure. Hyde Park, and okay. I have yet to leave because this is the best city. Yay! I feel the same way. I'm native, and Chicago's the best place on earth, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, my, my wife and I, uh, at one point, we were contemplating moving, and we both went to to University of Chicago, so we did what you see people do. We created a spreadsheet <laughs> with all the requirements we could have and about what, how we like to live. And then we picked 20 cities and we assessed them and we, you know, we, we did our analysis and Chicago was number one. That is the geekiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of geeky things, um, I should tell you a full disclaimer, you know, I used to be a science teacher, um, and so this question is a little sciencey. Okay. So <clears throat> the and and interestingly enough, there's a little picture on the the room that we're in, um, 
of the proton, the neutron, and the electron. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that we ask all of our applicants when they're coming to IC stars is, if if you could be one of the three, which one would you be? Like the proton is the person who is super positive. They see the glasses half full, but oftentimes they also see people for their potential versus who they are today, and they can get disappointed. So that's the mm-hmm. downside. The neutron, who they're snuggled up with in the nucleus, has both the positive and the negative. So they're the pros and cons, good news and bad news. Um, the they, the downside to being the neutron is that sometimes they suffer from Hamlet's disease to be or not to be analysis mm-hmm. paralysis mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then orbiting around the outside of the cell is the electron who's would never say they were negative. They'd say, I'm realistic. The glass is half empty. Um, and I'm not going to pretend it's not because I don't want to get disappointed. They're great at being able to identify and manage risk. Um, they make wonderful photographers because they can see the negative space. Um, and of course, you know, in, in business and in friendship groups, we need all three because that's kind of what keeps the cell together and mm-hmm. what keeps us together. So my question is today when you look at yourself at work and, and in your role, are you more the proton, the neutron, or the electron? Today, I would say I'm more a proton um, in large part because a lot of my, a lot of my role is to, f- is to foster change, is to foster improvements. And, uh, and, and change doesn't come from a negative place. Change comes from creating situations where people can choose to step into the, mm. those situations and, and decide to succeed. Um, and change themselves. And I don't think you can be a person who creates those kinds of situations without, without, without believing that, that everyone has the potential to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very occasionally, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, electron all the way, um, (laughs) but I was a systems administrator then. So that's, that's just how they, uh, occasionally you have to step into that, into that space um, for, as you say, you know, to manage risk, to manage compliance, but, but overall, um, I see, I, I, I look at what I do and what gets me excited is creating those, is creating those situations, um, for people to, to make the decision to, um, to change, to improve, to succeed. Yeah. I love that that's, that's where you went with it. Cause I think, I think that the the notion of change is so complex and beautiful, right? And and what you're essentially saying is that there's hope in that. There's mm-hmm. hope in the person who's kind of pushing the change, and there's hope for the person from the person who's it, it, stepping into that change. Mm-hmm. Even though you know we always say like change is uncomfortable. That's how you know it's working. And so there's that like icky kind of I don't like this moment until you sort of get to the other side, mm-hmm. right? Um, a friend of mine refers to it as being happily uncomfortable. Yeah, perfect. That's a perfect way to say it. And even your comment earlier about these this group of interns and kind of the tea experience being mm-hmm. about like, you know, willingly thrusting yourself into that uncomfortable place of having to learn, relearn, and apply that learning over and over again. And it's it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and one of it, it really is, I think, one of the hardest things a person can do. And, uh, and so 
if if those of us who are in you know in leadership roles look at it, look at our look at our responsibilities to include creating those situations and 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 fostering that potential then um then you you have to you have to go into that with a lot of optimism. Yeah. You, have to go, you know, you have to go in that with a pretty, uh, with a pretty strong belief that, that something good is going to come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really it, it, it marries nicely with it. You know, we, I, I, the reason why I picked technology is the skill that we would teach here is that I love the change in it, right? Mm-hmm. It's always changing. It's forcing us to, to look at ourselves and the change that we want in our lives and our community and, and, and all the systems thinking that goes into a change management and just so many good building blocks. Um, so tell us about, you know, your, what are you geeking out at uh, on these days over the planetarium? What's your technology fun time? Okay. Um, I was I was about to give a non-technology answer and I still will. <laughs> Good. Um, but the, the 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 technology I think that I'm geeking out about right now is is around our kind of our just beginning uh, data analysis function. So um, I inherited I joined Adler just over two years ago and I inherited um, a very small. Uh, database, I wouldn't even call it a data warehouse, and 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 uh, a Tableau server for data visualization, um, but it was mostly sitting idle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing in the last year or so is starting to kind of redeploy resources in that area. So we took a uh, we we uh, redeployed a position to make to create a data analyst position, hired somebody from. Uh, from within the the museum community to to come in and we're uh, and we're we're at the beginning of changing of kind of changing our culture in a way that bends toward data, um, not just as a here's what the numbers say so we should do that, but mm-hmm. in a here's what the numbers say let's talk about it let's contextualize it let's understand it and then let's let's use that sum total to inform the decisions that we make. Um, my data analyst and my data engineer actually just delivered a, a presentation on attendance data um, and how to best how to understand it and classify it uh, to our leadership team, to the CEO and and, and my fellow uh, vice presidents, and they they did a phenomenal job. And but most importantly, they fostered the exactly the conversation we were hoping for mm. around data presented in a way that is understandable. And can be contextualized to make decisions, yeah. to change behaviors, and they were blown away by the leadership team's engagement in the conversation. Um, though it helps when you have three scientists and three MBAs, and, and then <laughs> and then two people who just love data. We are all geeking out about it, um, about our our, our potential um, to to add more data sources to to um, to gain greater insights to move from what was you know from looking back at what was to mm-hmm. starting to predict mm-hmm. um, what can be um, so that's my technology geeking right now um, non technological is around um, a topic that I think n- never quite gets enough enough uh, traction which is um, how does an organization manage its own projects how does it, and manage a portfolio? Mm-hmm. And at a more fundamental level, how does an organization 
understand what it's even doing. Yeah. So much work is not visible and, uh, and, and, um, you know, it's hidden in the time you spend in your email and the time that, that, that you spend when somebody drops by your door and says, Hey, you got a minute. Um, and the unexpected, the unexpected unplanned, uh, crisis that drops on your desk or, mm -hmm. or what have you. And, um, and so right now I've been with my, with my colleagues in, on the leadership team, I've been geeking out about the idea of like, if we can make something visible, then we can look at it and determine what to do about it. Mm. As long as it's invisible, we don't know about it. Yeah. Um, and we can't do anything about it. And, um, and that idea is starting to get some traction and that will then lead into, okay, so if we're all about making our work visible, then how do we, you know, it, how do we promote that transparency at, a, at an organizational level? How do we, uh, how do we, uh, make sure that everybody has what they need to know to do their jobs and potentially to make those jobs better mm. and to improve the Adler. Wow. It, they're both kind of about data, right? They like, are. They are. I love the visible, invisible. Um, my lunch today was all about data, too. It said uh, a data guy from, the pol from politics, mm -hmm. right? And so we just had this fascinating conversation about the last election and going forward, and it was all data, 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 and mm -hmm. he's like, runs a data boot camp, um, so data's not just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> and then we're all using it in so many mm -hmm. different ways to not only um, improve our organizations or improve our processes, but to really move forward, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> and the example of your team presenting that data for the leadership team in such a way that it, it, it created a context for, mm -hmm. to have the conversation that you wanted to have. Um, that's powerful stuff. Yeah, I could see where that would, I would totally geek out. Um, and it's, and it's interesting. The museum industry is, is for the most part kind of now starting to get steeped in data. Um, but it's fairly new for us. Hmm. Um, there are, there are, uh, there, there are some that are a little further ahead, but, um, it's interesting. And I, to me, because I've worked in higher education, most of my career, um, and I thought that higher education was relatively slow to this. Um, and I find that museums are, are in that same, that same boat. So it's kind of exciting to, um, to be there, to kind of be at the beginning, uh, as opposed to already having kind of a well, well-oiled machine already working. Yeah. Um, and to figure out not just what data do we have and how can we use it, but really what does the organization need at this time? Um, because you have to, you know, as, right, as any data scientist or, or, or leader of data scientists will tell you, um, you can't just jump from no data culture to full-on predictive data culture. You, mm -hmm. there are, there's an evolution you have to go through. And I'm, I'm, I think my, t my team and I are enjoying going through that because that allows us to learn as well. Um, as, uh, both learn about the organization and how it uses it and learn mm -hmm. about the, the techniques that are continually being developed Yeah, and figure out which ones are good for us to adopt. Yeah. And oh, by the way, uncover all that cool data. Yeah. Right. Like what a journey that is. Yeah. And, and be in the, and be in the conversations. I think that's one of the great things that I've experienced so far at Adler is the willingness to engage us in conversation. So my, uh, so my team has been able to, they, they're not, they don't just deliver a chart. They don't just deliver a table. Um, they, they are, they, they are invited into the 
well, what does it mean to have this? Mm-hmm. What is this chart telling us? And what does that mean? And what can we do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a really good example is we, uh, uh, so we're, we're part of Museums in the Park, which uh, uh, many of the museums in Chicago um, are, are, are part of um, with the Park District. And the, um, and as part of doing that, we provide uh, 52 days every year that are Illinois resident discount days. Um, and for us, that means like on one of those days, if you live in, if you're, if you live in Illinois, you come and you get free general admission. And um, we have to decide every year which days of the 363 that were open, um, which 52 do we mm-hmm. designate as, as discount days. And, um, and the, our, our vice president of marketing worked with the data team to look at past performance, to discuss what's worked well and what hasn't worked well. There have been various experiments. What experiments might we want to do this year so we can mm-hmm. gather yet more data? Mm-hmm. Um, and together they came up with a schedule that, um, that was then um, delivered and we're now in that process. We're now in that year now. So that was work that was done late last year for, for 2018. And at the end of 2018, we'll look at what's happened in 2018 and the experiments that we've tried mm-hmm. and we will refine our, our, we'll refine our definitions further. Yeah. And it's a great, not only is it a great iterative process, um, but it's just, it's a great conversation and it gives more meaning for the data team into the work that they do. Right. It's not just, Hey, I need a chart. Give me a chart. Right. It's let's, you know, come be part of, come be part of, of, of approaching this challenge. Yeah. Yeah. A seat at the table. Exactly. It's perfect. Awesome. So, so now is my future question, right? Like, so what do you see for the future? Um, whether that's technology or museums or, you know, how, what, what, what's the thing that you think on the horizon is the most exciting? I think I'm going to focus a little bit on museums because I'm, I'm much more actively learning about museums right now since I've only been uh, in, in, in the industry for a couple of years. I think what's, what's exciting about museums right now is that they're going through, as an industry, museums are going through redefining what it means to be a museum. Hmm. And, and Adler is, is, is absolutely in this, in this space as well. So if, uh, right, if you came to the Adler uh, you know, many years ago, um, the Adler was a place you went to be told about space science. Okay. And right. So you would come in and you would walk through exhibits and the exhibits would tell you information right Mm -hmm. through the, you know, through them. You might go to a lecture and somebody will tell you about Mm -hmm. it. You would go to a show and somebody would tell you stuff. And, and, and through that, uh, you might, you will learn about space science. Um, but that was kind of the end of the relationship yeah. and you would leave and you would go home and, and life would continue. Increasingly museums have found themselves challenged with, with that, with that, with that model. Um, because we are, you know, because we're competing for your time as you know, and we're not just compete, you know, right. We're, 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 we're trying to get some of your time and time is very precious and you may, and you can choose to spend it on anything. It could be, you could decide to come to the Adler. You could decide to go to the art Institute. You could decide to stay home and binge watch Netflix. Um, <laughs> right. We're, you know, all of these things are, are 
decisions you make about your time um, and what and what that investment is. And increasingly that become that has that has shown to be um, about how do we engage you? How do we make it compelling for you? to want to visit the Adler, to want to engage with us. Um, and so that's changing the way that, the way that museums embrace their communities and embrace the public. Um, I was just asked about like, you know, what great user experience at the Adler. And, and frankly, my favorite is our community design lab. So this is our junk drawer. Um, like it's a size, it's, it's, you know, it's a big room. It's got construction paper and scissors and tape and Legos and, balsa wood and all sorts of, you know, and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and people come through adults and kids alike, and they just build stuff. Mm. Um, there are challenges that you can do in, in, in there. And, um, but you're mostly left to just kind of just make some stuff. Um, and our goal there is, is twofold. One, it's to encourage people to get in there, get their hands dirty a little bit, right? Sure. Make some things. Um, the other is to, is to get across the idea that, you know, a museum is not a place you just go to and that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, a museum hopefully can be a place you go to and be inspired to keep going. Mm. So the reason we call it our junk drawer and we deliberately have it, you know, the way we do is what's in the room is all familiar to people mm-hmm. and likely they have a lot of that stuff, if not all of it in their houses. So they mm-hmm. can just go right home and keep on experimenting. Yeah. And that's, that, that is increasingly part of what it means to experience a museum. Wow. Um, and we're, and, and, uh, and there are a lot of institutions that are moving in that, in that direction toward, toward a museum being a, a place to have a conversation yeah. as opposed to just being a place to, of a, a, a place where you go to gain knowledge. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Well, and it's it's it, the 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 nut of it, the core of it, is about engagement, right? So, for your definition of the future is about how we engage. Absolutely. So, and, and it doesn't. And I use that experience uh, as, as as one that is my favorite in the museum. Um, in addition, you know the idea of the Adler doesn't just have to be the building that is out on Lake Michigan. So one of the things um, that I think is one of the most awesome things that we do is we are have, we are part of a collaboration called Zooniverse, um, primarily with the University of Oxford. And for the last 10 years, we've been promoting online citizen science um, where scientists put up their large data sets um, that they can't possibly process on their own and and where machine learning hasn't yet gotten to where they can automate everything, um, particularly in areas where you have visual pattern recognition, mm-hmm. something that humans do very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, machines are still learning, you know, we're still learning how to, how to um, evolve machine learning fully to there. And um, now work that would take decades can be done in weeks um, because there are now some 1.6 million volunteers who are on Zooniverse, who are part of this huge global online community doing science. Um, and, and volunteers have become published authors because they've contributed to discoveries. They have, you know, they, they, they do the work, the, they, they go through the tasks of, of, um, that the scientists need 
and there are, there are chat rooms where they then discuss what they found and they've made interesting, unexpected connections, like all the things you want and love about the scientific process mm -hmm. occur in this online community. It's, it's phenomenal. And yeah. now it's gone well beyond, uh, it, it's just skyrocketed in the last couple of years. We just, uh, our uh, VP of citizen science, uh, Laura Tree was just on Science Friday um, twice in the last, in the last uh, several weeks because um, we delivered a million classification challenge for um, for um, uh, for galaxy identification, mm -hmm. um, we and 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 people stepped up and they hit it. Um, That's and so cool. It's just it's such a you know, but it also change. It's so amazing in <clears throat> and of itself, and it changes the notion of what it means to to engage in science and to engage with a museum mm -hmm. that a museum isn't necessarily defined by its walls. Yeah. Um, that we can, that we can truly be everywhere, um, and be, and be part of, and be part of that, that science conversation. The entire galaxy. We can hope. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So, so then, Switching gears a little bit, how about for you? Did you was there um, a mentor or a coach that you had in your early on in your career, or maybe even before your career started, that sort of put you on the tracks to, um, you know, being a geek, being in in IT, being in education? And there, are, there are a couple of people. There's one. I think one. Uh, talk about really early on, and then one a little bit later, but still still kind of early career. Um, the, the really early one. So when I was in college, I, uh, I studied economics at, um, university of Chicago didn't even have a computer science major when I started. Um, and, uh, but I worked at the, at the computer store on campus. Mm -hmm. So I worked particularly in the service area. Um, so, uh, everybody brought their broken Macs and, or still IBM ThinkPads yep. and their Dells and everything to, uh, you know, and I learned how to fix them. And um, that was a real opportunity that set me into IT at all because uh, the manager of that area um, flat out said, you know, I could, you know, I could just have you like up at the front taking orders and running spreadsheets. Um, but I think you might find this more interesting. Here's mm. a screwdriver. Here's RAM. Here's a computer. Oh. Don't break it. Um, and through that, the couple of years that I worked for him, um, he also happened to teach um, at uh, at a community college. He would teach like you know, kind of tech one hundred and one. Sure. And he would bring. He would also go deliver those lessons in in the office, like or in the service bay. So he would he would stop stop us at certain points to explain what RAID was um, and. Um, and why that mattered or, or different areas of Windows administration. And that, that was crucial. Um, and all of it started with him putting a screwdriver in my hand, um, which is, again, he was creating the situation for me to step into and mm -hmm, decide that I mm -hmm. was going to, to, to change and, to, and, and hopefully succeed. Mm -hmm. um, later on, um, maybe six, seven years later, um, the other person I was thinking of when you mentioned a, a mentor, uh, uh, was, I was, uh, working on a, it was, I was working on kind of managing my first big project, um, that required a lot more 
influence where people who didn't work for me were part of the project. Um, I had to do a lot of socializing of ideas and getting people on board and gaining buy-in and, um, and also keep the project going, mm -hmm. um, all the mechanics of, of good project management. Um, and at the time I was not very good at that. And for the most part, up until that point, I'd kind of skated, I, I, I'll be honest, I kind of, I, I, I was good at what I did, but I kind of skated by a little bit. I wasn't, I, did, I never really dug in and got really good at it. And the reason this, this person is so important to me in my career is um, she was uh, kind of, she was serving as kind of a co-project manager to support me working on this project. And, 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 and she had long since like climbed the mountain. She had been a CIO in other places and had gone before going into uh, her own consulting practice. And she sat me down and my technical lead down for an entire morning to just tell us, to hold us accountable, to tell us that we were not doing it well, that uh -huh. if, we, if we wanted this project to succeed, we needed to really change what we were doing and really just call us, call us on our lack of success. Mm. Um, and certainly at the time it was harsh to like, you know, and I was <laughs> embarrassed and ashamed. Um, but it was also absolutely the right thing to do. It taught me that, you know what, I'm not just naturally great at everything and I need to, you know, there, there are times I need to dig in and really learn how to do something well. Um, it taught me that people are going to hold me accountable when I don't do it well and that's important. Um, and I need to be prepared to live up to their expectations as well as my own and maybe I need to raise my own bar. Um, and, I need, you know, I learned the, the, value of, the value of candor kind of mm -hmm. all in that moment that yeah. if she wasn't willing to be candid with me about it, the project would have failed. Yeah. Um, but because she chose to, to deliver the harsh truth that needed to be delivered, um, going back to making work, making issues visible, um, by putting it on the table, we could look at it yeah. and we could figure out, okay, how are we going to correct our course? Right. How are we going to get back on track? Um, and we did. And the project, uh, ultimately was a success. Um, but it wouldn't. I don't think that would have happened had she, had she not kind of delivered that that key moment. That's awesome, and and how much respect she had to be able to tell you that truth as well. Exactly, because like, on her and she had to she had to believe that we had it in us to, mm -hmm. to actually do the project. Mm -hmm. And because if she felt that we were a lost cause, she'd have just gone to my boss and said, you need to take him off this project yeah. and go get somebody. Yeah, you know, bring me on or get somebody to do it. And um, and she didn't. She she chose instead to invest her time um, and herself in in help in enabling us to um, to to step into a new situation. Yeah, and that's the proton um, that people don't recognize, right? Because it mm -hmm. feels like you feel that sting of the truth when you're like, <gasps> you know, and and, and right. seeing yourself in that light and all the disappointment and everything else. We're not thinking. We're thinking. You know, but it's in hindsight that we realize just how much hope came with that message. Absolutely. And it yeah. took me a while to, to realize all of it. But um, and that was close to 15 years ago now. And but it sticks with me. Like every time I start a new project, mm -hmm. I, I think about I think about that that project. And I and I think, OK, 
you know, I think about it just enough to say, okay, I'm going to plan this one well. I'm going to make sure I know what done looks like. I'm going to make sure I understand the major steps to get there. I'm going to allow for, uh, for, iter you know, for, for iteration to result in, uh, to result in, in, in change to scope or change to, um, the desired outcomes. Um, all, you know, I'm going to figure out in it, you know, as early as I can, who my, who my stakeholders are and yeah. how do I make sure that they are, uh, that, that we've reached consensus on what we're trying to do. All, all of those things come back to, to that moment in, yeah, like 2004. Wow. Nice. Well, good. This, this was a great conversation geeking out about change and, and, and being able to see ourselves and see each other and, um, and of course, data, of course, data, so much data, <laughs> so much. And I really enjoy just uh, sitting down and talking with you, Chris. Thanks for being on the BLT today. Thank you, Sandy.